0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I was reminded this week of the story of the reformer John Calvin. Just thinking about the weight that we even have as a body have been under, uh, bearing uh, with that alongside the cells. John Calvin was a pastor. A pastor at heart, maybe not known so much as such, but was that, a pastor who faced many trials, tribulations during his time in the pulpit. So much so that he was at one point exiled from his church, exiled from his country, facing the the threat of imprisonment and all that went with it. Years later, though, he was able to come back to his church again, was reinstated. And when he got into the pulpit, he turned to the next page after where he had left off. There's something about that, right? There's something about, i even preparing for this Sunday thing. What do we even do? There's something about just turning to the next page and hearing what God has to say to us today. Well, we're picking up today in our series then, A Child is Born, in which we've been walking each week through the the four women singled out in the genealogy of Jesus in the gospel according to Matthew. Four women who, again, by their mention in that genealogy are meant to call to mind the stories of which they were a part. Because their stories are part of the story of Jesus. Four women, each of whom began as an outsider. But some way, somehow, ended up an insider in the end. Whether Tamar, Tamar, or Rahab, or the woman we're going to look at today named Ruth. And if you have a Bible, I'd invite you to turn to her story recorded in the book that bears her name, which which happens to be the, the Cinderella story of the Old Testament and perhaps the greatest little love story ever written in human history. So turn with me to Ruth chapter 1, and I want to read for you just the first five verses which set the scene for what's to come. Again, in Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. This is God's Word. It says this, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Machlon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, they went into the country of Moab and remained there. But, but Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years. And both Machlon and Kilion died. So that the women was left without her two sons and her husband. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today, even with where we are as a church, body, mourning, loss, even as we seek to celebrate life, I pray, Lord, that you would guide our time today, looking at a, a, a period in the history of your people that many were dying, in which many were losing their lives. And yet you were at work, piece by piece, moving ahead your plan of redemption. I pray we would see the hope in that today, even as we look at this woman named Ruth, in the name of Jesus, her great, great, great ancestor, I pray. Amen. I got to tell you, something the holidays always stir inside me. It's a feeling that I'm an outsider. Like, for some reason, I'm the one missing out on everything that's going on. Like I was left off the invitation list and left to the to a life of of looking in through through frosted window panes at the party that's going on without me. Ever since I was a little boy. As if I was never cool enough to make the list and never worthy enough to be needed. And I remember that, that feeling when, when Kath and I were dating and I'd, I'd drive out to visit her and spend the holidays with her family. Always the outsider. Her two brothers were doctors. I never felt like I quite measured up. I was the youngest um, compared to all her siblings. Just always felt like the outsider. Or more recently... When my siblings are all back on the East Coast and I've somehow ended up in their group text listening to all the wonderful things they're planning on doing together. And believe it or not, if I'm just being honest, a hint of that has followed me even here. Like I'm an outsider. Even in the church, I'm supposed to be pastoring. Now, I'm not telling you this. I don't need you to come up to me afterwards and comfort me and tell me that that's not the case and coddle me. If I need that, I'll go to Catherine. She'll tell me right quick just to get over myself. (laughs) But why I'm telling you that is that for what you might be feeling yourself, To make the point that what you may be feeling about being on the outside looking in, about not being worthy or needed, is something being felt by many more than just you. I mean, for Pete's sake, if the pastor is pathetic enough to feel sometimes like the outsider in the church he's supposed to be pastoring, it's probably a more universal problem than we sometimes care to admit. One of the questions, though, that that leaves on the table is this. How do outsiders become insiders? And as we've been looking this Advent at outsiders who did just that, this has been a question that we've danced around. But today, it's a question that we're going to hit head on. And that's because this story of Ruth, more than that of Tamar or Rahab, is meant to set for us an example that we are to follow of how, in part, an outsider became an insider. And we're going to see from the first chapter, that's what we're going to focus in on especially. We're going to see from the first chapter of this little book that it all comes down to the faithfulness of the this outsider girl to the insider God. It has very little to do with her connection to others. It begins somewhere else. Let me first, though, catch you up to speed from these five verses that set the scene in in which before we're introduced to the faithfulness of this girl, we're introduced to the faithfulness of that God. To begin with, his faithfulness in the midst of widespread disaster. That's what's happening in verses one and two, a widespread disaster in, in the form of a famine. And though it may look like God is sitting on the sidelines doing nothing, we're in fact introduced to the story to clue us in that he's actually guiding everything. That in the days when the judges judged and everyone was doing what was right in his own eyes and God's people were even facing God's punishment for walking away from God's promises, That's what that famine was all about. Even then, God was faithfully at work. Because the story of Ruth is the story of God moving God's people from man's anarchy to eventually life under God's chosen king. As much as we see this in the midst of widespread disaster, though we see God's faithfulness just as much in the midst of personal tragedy. Listen to these verses again, verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Now, at least she was left, it says, with her two sons. These lived there about 10 years. But then it says that her two sons died too. And you wonder how bad it could get living in a foreign land with no life insurance, no pension, no paycheck, or hope of ever having one. Yet even here, it's the story of the faithfulness of God in the midst of personal tragedy. That as broken as our world is, it's not out of control. And that adversity doesn't come down To us by accident. But we're also introduced here through disaster and tragedy to God's faithfulness in the midst of human sinfulness. This is important because last time I checked, that's part of all of our lives. Not to say that all bad things are directly related to bad things done. But in this case, that famine, this guy, Elimelech, and his wife, Naomi, were fleeing from was, again, God's punishment of God's people for walking away from God's promises. It was something that was foretold in the book of Deuteronomy that you walk away from me and the land will be hard as rock. Yet rather than turn back to God, at least this family runs from him. And while escaping, the public punishment is left to pay in a very personal way. That's what you're to read in these very short verses that set the scene this little story. Yet this is still the story of God's faithfulness in the midst of a faithless generation, bridging the gap between the anarchy of a book like Judges, the the autocracy of a man like Elimelech, making himself God, and the monarchy under God's chosen king. But while the faithfulness of God paves the way for outsiders to become insiders, that shift occurs only when those outsiders commit themselves in faithfulness to that insider God, which we see again in the faithfulness of this outsider girl named Ruth. And here, what I I want you to notice as we walk through the uh, uh, chunk of this chapter is the extent of this faithfulness. It's a faithfulness over all earthly securities. Over first, the security of one's circumstances. Over second, the security of one's future. And third, over the, the security of one's company. First, that Ruth was faithful over the security of her circumstances. Or another way to put it, faithful both to God and to others before seeking comfort in her present situation. We read in verse 6 that after her husband and sons die, she, meaning Naomi, arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. The famine was over. So she, again Naomi, set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But, we're told, Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go, go. Return, each of you, to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. The first of three pleas for them to, to return to their homeland. Which here, at this point, centers on their seeking, as best they could, comfort in their present situation. Now, there wasn't much left for these two widowed and apparently barren after 10 years. Apparently barren daughters-in-law. Yet there was a little hope if they turned back to what was left of their family ties which is what Naomi is getting at when she tells them to go back to the homes of their mothers. See, in that patriarchal society in in which this story took place, it would have been typical to tell them at this point to return to the homes of their fathers. But releasing Ruth and Orpah back to the homes of what she calls their mothers was her way of releasing them to remarry. You only ever talked about your mother's home in that day if your mother's home was a pit stop on your way to your spouse's home. So in calling them to return to their mother's homes, Naomi was calling them to find comfort in what was left of their present situation. Yet even after invoking the Lord to deal kindly with them, to be relationally faithful to them as they had been to her and her sons remarkably both of these individuals they still refuse to turn back her farewell kiss in verse 9 is meant only with weeping and refusal because their faithfulness to her outweighs their concern for the security Of their circumstances. And it's probably right for us to ask if, as the ones who feel like outsiders ourselves, we would have done the same. Do we do the same? Being faithful to others because of our faith in God. And the real test for that isn't when things are hunky dory. It's when life gets uncomfortable, when doing so makes life uncomfortable, because it's times that cost us our comfort, that prove our character, of whether in those moments I'd choose faithfulness to God and faithfulness to God's people over the security of my circumstances. Beyond that, though, we find Ruth faithful even over the security of her future. Though some of us may, in a moment of uncharacteristic faithfulness, withstand the dismal outlook of a present situation, thinking perhaps that circumstances are bound to change sometime soon. Many of us would fold if our future was painted just as black. But if we take Ruth as our example, our faithfulness ought to extend even over the the security of our futures as well. A study was done recently on what keeps people going when times are tough. And whether it's economic instability or national unrest or personal turmoil. The one difference this study found between those who give up and those who keep going was this idea of future hope. Hope in a future. Hope in future change. Hope in some light at the end of the life's black tunnel. It's what keeps us going. Well, what if you had to put that on the line too? This may be why Naomi's second plea for her daughters in law sort of ratcheting up Her plea centers on their futures. She says in verse 11, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Is there any future hope for you here? Again, she says in verse 12, Turn back, my daughters. Go your way. For I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No. And then just to add a little kicker, Naomi explains at the end of verse 13 that that, that she sees her entire misfortune as coming from the hand of the Lord, that he's cut her future off. For she says, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the Lord, the hand of the Lord, has gone out against me. She's telling them, there is no future hope if you return with me. So the one named Orpah weeps and goes. But what of Ruth? This outsider clings to her. It's interesting. It's interesting how how different languages describe this. In Hebrew the word is devok to cling to. The same word that's used in Genesis when it says a, a man is to leave his family and to, to cling to his wife. And here's Naomi saying, go find a husband. Cling to him. And yet her response is to cling to her. That's why the words that, that follow later in this chapter are used in so many wedding ceremonies because Ruth is about to voice what it means to cling in faithfulness to another. In Greek, though, what the, when the Greeks translated this, they said that Orpah turned back, but Ruth followed. Surely that's what it means to say that Ruth clung to Naomi. She followed. But, but interestingly, the word means a little more than than you might think on the surface. Because this word to follow is the word used over and over and over again all throughout the Bible to describe what it means for someone to shadow another. To not only follow, but to become one's follower. So when Jesus calls His disciples, He calls them to follow Him to walk in his way, to become his shadow, and to do what he does and act as he acts and say what he says, to give up their future and cling to his. Which isn't a bad picture of faithfulness, is it? Living as another one's shadow, taking one's future and binding it to and lining it up with the path someone else is or, or has already walked. Walked. Do we do the same at the cost of our our present comfort, but also at the cost of the security of our future hope? That we lay it all on the line, all the chips on the table, when not only the present looks as dusk, but doing so seems to paint our futures as night. Night. Ruth has no idea what's ahead, and yet look, if we're following in her example, we will do just that over the security of our circumstances, over the security of our futures, and lastly, over the security of one's company. Naomi's final plea is directed at Ruth alone because Ruth alone is left. So Naomi says in verse 15 See, your sister in law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister in law. And I want you to picture in your mind's eye what Naomi is saying. As if she just walked Ruth up to a bridge and said, Orpah just walked away. Don't you want to, too? I know it's usually the other way around, right? Your parents say, don't follow your friends when they jump off the bridge, right? My parents never got to say that. Always the first one off. <laughs> Here, though, it's reversed. Walks up to the bridge and says, don't you want to turn back, to?'" Orpa didn't do it. Are you sure you want to try to jump into the unknown? And it's important to see that though that this isn't a blind leap of faith. It never is with God. But rather the question of whether Ruth is willing to take a leap of unconditional faithfulness. She's got plenty to go on based on what God has already done, sending word that now the famine was over. Even working through the faults of Elimelech that now through the flawed faith of this family, Ruth knows the one true God. Plenty to go on. And yet the question is whether Ruth will jump off that bridge even if no one else jumps with her. Why don't you follow your sister in law? Just walk away. No one else is doing it. Why would you? But Ruth jumps. Ruth jumps without hesitation. Ruth jumps with such certainty that her declaration of faithfulness has become one of the most remarkable statements of personal fidelity in all of Scripture. Listen to what she says in verse 16. You memorize these verses. She begins, Don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will. I will lodge. In life, I'm with you. Your people, she says, shall be my people and your God, my God, bound in faithfulness both to them and even more importantly to him. Where you die, she says, I will die and there will I be buried till death do us part. May the Lord do so to me and more also if anything but death parts me from you over the security of my circumstances, over the security of my future, and over the security of the company of this world. And to this it says, when Naomi finally saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. The story goes on from here. And what's nascent in Ruth's confession blossoms into a beautiful display of one individual's faithfulness to another. First to Naomi, providing for her when Naomi couldn't provide for herself. And then with a man named Boaz. That Cinderella story when when Ruth rather than running after perhaps more eligible bachelors commits herself to the man who commits to her underneath all of it though a faithfulness to the god working behind the scenes and this outsider finally finds her place as an insider As she serves hard and sacrifices hard, labors and and loves hard and and lives up at every turn to her reputation of being a worthy woman. That's what Boaz calls her in chapter 3 verse 11 when he says everyone knows it's true, you are a worthy woman, that by her faithfulness she has proved she belongs to God's community of faith. That she is a worthy woman. And an outsider who by her faithfulness has become an insider. But I want to be clear here. Because the way the story goes, it's not that Ruth experiencing the faithfulness of God simply decides one day to reflect that faithfulness for herself. But rather that the faithfulness of God is what always precedes, always grows that faithfulness in her. That at every point in the story, the hidden hand of God is molding and shaping her heart. God was doing it to begin with. And then when Ruth and Naomi end up back in Bethlehem when 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 the famine just happens to end. When they end up back in Bethlehem, it just so happened to be the beginning of the harvest season, which pushes Ruth to go out and glean in the fields. Then she just so happens to to happen into the field of a guy named Boaz. And he just so happens to be, according to their custom, a a candidate for for caring for her and her mother-in-law. And more than that, he just so happens to be the kind of guy who would care. In the days when everybody is doing what was right in their own eyes, she just happens into the field of the one guy who's doing things God's way. All along, the faithfulness of God growing the faithfulness of God's follower. So much so, we're told that, that to the, this outsider, this barren Moabite widow, by this guy named Boaz that to Ruth a child is born. Which in the end makes her as much an insider as anyone. Because that child ends up being the ancestor of a king named David who ends up being the ancestor of the king of kings named Jesus Christ. Let me leave you then with three thoughts. First, let me just talk for a moment to the women among us. More than Tamar and more than Rahab, I pray that you would be a Ruth, that you would be a worthy woman, serving hard, sacrificing hard, laboring and loving hard, taking the initiative. You know, that phrase is only used two other times in the Bible, both in the book of Proverbs. First, in Proverbs twelve four, where it says, A worthy woman is the crown of her husband. And then in Proverbs 31 where it says, a worthy woman who can find. And goes on to describe a woman that sets the bar pretty high. But listen, Ruth was so identified in the Old Testament with that Proverbs 31 woman that before we got around to rearranging the Bible in the way that we have it today, the Jews actually put her book right on the back end of Proverbs so that she became the embodiment of all that was listed there. So if you're looking for an idea about what true womanhood looks like, whether in commitment to a man who commits himself to you or before that as a single gal who's just sacrificing and serving on behalf of others, loving and laboring hard. This is where I would point you. This is what I I want for my girls. This is what I want for Catherine. Catherine. A woman who has her hands in everything, who, who takes care of her own and sacrifices on their behalf and is the first in the field and the last one to bed and who commits herself, if, if that's the, the life that God has for her, to the man who commits to her. And we need this kind of woman maybe more today than ever before. Second, though, let me say to those of us just generally who feel like outsiders, the way in isn't getting to the other side of those frosted window panes. As if being an insider is merely about being part of the party. A lateral move. It's not first and foremost about being an insider with everybody else, but about being an insider with the insider God. Everything else falls out of meaning at that point. It doesn't matter as much. So based on who God is and what God has done, let me encourage you to rather than focusing on everybody else and what you think everybody else is doing around you or or the party you think everybody else is a part of, let me encourage you to rather jump off the bridge of unconditional faithfulness. Both to God and to God's people. Because this is the way in to find yourself on the inside with that insider God. When you reflect in your faithfulness, his faithfulness to you. But then third, let me say this. That reflecting the faithfulness of God in our faithfulness to him is not essentially about trying harder, but about being transfixed. And here's what I mean it's about seeing the faithfulness of God that molds us and makes us faithful ourselves. It was true for Ruth, and it's as true for us today. That rather than conjure up the faithfulness for ourselves on our own behalf, we ought to stare harder at the faithfulness of God and stare especially, especially during this Christmas season, to stare especially at where that faithfulness was displayed most. To begin in a baby. Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Who then suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified upon the cross. And finally, who ultimately walked out of his tomb and promised that he would one day return. Stare. At the insider who became an outsider to make a way for outsiders like us to come in. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray, I pray even today as many of us will continue to weep over the events of this week, the loss of Colleen, I pray even today that you would so take our eyes and fix them on Jesus that we would find hope in the darkness. And I pray that each one of us here would in a new measure jump off the bridge of unconditional faithfulness based on who you are and what you've done, that we'd give it all into your hands and follow wherever you lead in the name of Jesus i pray amen thank you for joining us for more information about our church please visit our church's website at kishbible.org that's k i s h bible.org